Today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit's work in the New Testament. Last week we talked about his work in the Old Testament. Today it makes sense to go ahead and talk about the New Testament. That's what we're doing. So uh, I'm going to open us up in prayer. uh, And then we will uh, start talking about it. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, grateful for this time, Lord, to stop and think about you as our God. Uh, We are grateful for the Father's work in uh, sending the Spirit and and the Son's work in also sending the Spirit and doing that for our sakes. Uh, We pray for uh, strength today, uh, even in our minds, that we might be able to grasp these things and glorify you in them. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, I hope there's enough. There's some extra uh, sheets. The sheets are always more important to the teacher than they are to the students. Uh, Just... So if you just take them, you don't have to fill them out. Just hold them and like they're very precious to you, so I feel better. The, it's, uh, I found through my years of teaching that 90% of what a teacher does is for their own sake. Uh, just makes them feel better. Even tests and quizzes really aren't for the student. It's to make the teacher feel like they've done something. <laughs> they've made progress. All right. Well, um, let me make sure I got all my ducks in a row here. Okay. Well, uh, last time, like I said, we talked about the Old Testament. Today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. If you see on our upcoming schedule, we have the Holy Spirit's work in our holiness. Try and figure out what that means. And then after that, we're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And that's a very exciting time. Uh, isn't that where we take a, some kind of quiz to find out what our gifts are? And then, have you ever seen those things? No? All right. They're very helpful. So uh, we probably won't take that quiz. But uh, we're going to figure out what all that means so we don't start uh, getting weird about that. Okay. So as we talk about the Holy Spirit's work in the New Testament, there's a lot of different things that have been confusing to people that we want to try and clear up as well as we can today, um, and then talk about what it all means. Um, there, uh, there is some uh, confusion in that. People aren't sure what the Holy Spirit was doing in the Old Testament. So when we get to the New Testament, there's this weird transition time of people that were Old Testament people. They're now dealing with the Holy Spirit in a New Testament way. And then we have to ask ourselves questions like, so does this work today? Do we do the same thing we saw them do in Acts 2? Um, How does all that work? What was going on? So in the Old Testament, what did we learn about last week? That's a terrifying question uh, to me. What was that? You're being a real teacher. Yeah, I know. It's like, what do you do on Friday? <laughs> yeah, you don't know how we dread those kind of questions. Um, You'll be lucky if you get uh, what I did yesterday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, let me let me make it super specific. How does the uh, how does did the Holy Spirit 
um, act when it came to salvation in the Old Testament? Look, let me start even more basic. Is there a difference between the sinful nature of someone in the Old Testament and the sinful nature of someone in the New Testament? No. 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 All right, good. Yes, that's correct. So, what is the only way someone who is dead in their sin is able to come to know the Lord and repent? By the Holy Spirit. Work of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, uh, we have this phrase called uh, spirit-wrought faith. That means the Spirit brings it to you. You don't get to try and make yourself have faith. You can't go through an experience that conjures faith. The Holy Spirit literally has to bring faith to you so that you can believe. And that has been the way it happened with Adam himself. And that's the way it happens now. So no revivals in this church, no tent outside. Well, nothing wrong with revivals. Uh, it's, it kind of has a... Uh, you're kind of assuming that the Holy Spirit's going to show up and <laughs> do his special work. Um, but it's not that we don't believe in revivals. It's that we ask the Lord to do that every, every Sunday that people come in. Instead of believing a tent might be more helpful. Um, so, in the New Testament, we get different, uh, we get different promises of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So in the New Old Testament, we discover, okay, well, the, the Holy Spirit works in the same way in our salvation. So what's all this about in the New Testament when there's this promise of the coming Holy Spirit? Isn't he already there? Does that make sense? So this should be a question in our mind that we're super eager to answer by the end of this time we have together. <laughs> all right. Has it been a rough week? I can see it on your faces. I can see it. I can see that it's been a rough week, uh, and that you're kind of hoping that I don't ask any more questions, and that we can just coast through this. You can nod a little bit, and that'll be it. All right. Well, we'll see if that happens. In John 14, this is Christ speaking. Uh, in verse 16, Christ says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. So here is a triune verse. Uh, the Trinity is very prevalent because someone who isn't the Father needs to ask the Father of something to send someone who is not the Father or the Son, who is the Helper. Um, so why does uh, Christ have to ask the Father? Uh, what was that? Yes, and they've made covenantal um, agreements already, right? And so he asked the Father for the Spirit to come because the Spirit proceeds from the Father. But also, the Spirit's going to proceed from the Son as well, as we will see. And he's going to send the Helper. So what's that word mean? It's the paraclete word we had talked about before. That we talked about last week, in fact. What's that mean? 
Yes, counselor. The same way you would expect a lawyer to be your counselor. We even use that term, right? Your lawyer, remember we used that last time, your lawyer is your advocate. You don't have all what you need, the expertise, the, uh, you can represent yourself in court. It's not the smartest idea, right? You need someone that is able to represent you who has the power and the ability and the connections needed to represent you so that um, you can be helped. And that's the idea here. The advocate. So your first one there is the Holy Spirit will be an advocate. He will advocate for you. He is your counselor. He is your helper. All these words are words designed to try and help you understand that you are in a position where you cannot help yourself. And you need an advocate. Um, in Acts 1.5... There's a promise um, of, a, of the Holy Spirit that, will, that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It says, for John baptized you with water, uh, but John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So your next uh, blank there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit is another promise. In Acts 2, 17 and 18, um, the promise was made in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit would come and there would be an outpouring of the, old, of the Holy Spirit. An outpouring. And in 2, 38, um, the Holy Spirit is promised as a gift. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we find that the Holy Spirit is an advocate for you because you don't have the position or power to be able to receive grace. You need an advocate. And there is a baptism going on. What is a baptism? <coughs> What was that? Cleansing of water. Okay, yeah, that's right. And um, when it comes to sacraments, we say it is an outward sign of an inward reality. Remember that kind of talk? Um, and so the Holy Spirit is going to be one that will give outward signs of inward realities to you. Um, there's an outpouring. Um, what does is, what is that kind of a picture conjure in your mind? An outpouring. The fruit of the Spirit. What was that? It's the fruit that we bear. Okay. Yeah. That we show within. Does, um... I picture it like a bucket being bent over. Okay. Yeah, there's a picture there of... It's not a small amount. It's not... This is where the Baptist would be really happy. It's not a sprinkling. <laughs> it is a, an outpouring, like a, a gushing out. It's, a, it's a talking about the amount of power that is being thrust upon those that receive the Holy Spirit. 
And because he is a gift, he's not something that you get to take. Uh, Part of what makes the idea of you being the one in control of your salvation. Um, The reason why uh, that idea was at first considered a heresy, that you choose God, and then God submits to you and says, okay, I'm coming in because you you were smart enough to think of it and ask me. Uh, Part of the problem with that is that we diminish this gift. The Holy Spirit's work is a gift to you. Um, You don't take the Holy Spirit. You don't decide you want the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit submits to your desires. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes to you. He is the gift. And you... Who, is, who are dead in your sins, become alive, not because a dead person chose anything, but because the Holy Spirit was gifted to you, and this power comes upon you to believe. So, that brings us to the new work that's going on in the, Old, in the New Testament with the Holy Spirit, and so we have to go to Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost. Um, And Pentecost is uh, really just talking about 50 days after the Passover. Um, There was a festival celebration. And on that 50th day, they were celebrating that festival. When the day of Pentecost had come, They were all together in one place. Okay, this is talking about the church. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing of wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves. And they... um, And they... And they rested on each one of them, these tongues of fire. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking with, um, with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And, uh, now uh, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So you have this scene, okay? Um, And this is where uh, Christians kind of get a little embarrassed. At least, well, let me put it this way. This is where oftentimes... um, Presbyterians get a little embarrassed because it's uh, uh, we would prefer probably as Presbyterians that when the Holy Spirit came uh, suddenly um, people started understanding things really well and someone stood up and spoke a really good lecture and people began instantly received PhDs <laughs> and the tongues of fire were actually PhDs that we were all receiving and that would make us feel a lot better about things <laughs> But instead, it was this 
thing that uh, isn't so academic, right? Uh, you hear something. You see something, like tongues of fire on people's head, and then they start doing things that are unpredictable and scary. They start speaking in other languages. And all of this uh, seems as though it goes against everything that uh, we have been trying so hard after all these years to try to avoid, which is Christianity is reasonable. <laughs> We're smart too. And we have all these really good arguments, and we have PhDs, and they have PhDs, and so we can uh, engage in a dialectic that would cause us to uh, get our interlocutors to understand our reasonable ways. And then we have this in there that talks about a noise coming down, tongues of fire, people, speak, people speaking in other languages, and it's like, it's kind of embarrassing, right? It's like, ah, oh. you know, that, that happened then, we. Right? And so we're almost embarrassed how the Holy Spirit came upon these people. Does that make sense? Because what we'd rather have is something a little more reasonable and intelligent, and this doesn't seem that way. But the picture we have here is a mighty power. Right? Uh, in our American way, we have seen, uh, we have come to believe that knowledge is power, and there is some uh, truth to that. But what we're uncomfortable with is something that's powerful both uh, visually and auditorial. Auditorially? <laughs> Looking to the music people. Uh, but you, you see real power coming down. You can hear it, you can see it, and you can witness it because you see people that didn't know a language start speaking that language. And we see real power. Now, what's interesting is that um, according to Matthew 16, 15 through 20, it is clear that the disciples who, had, who at this point were now receiving the Holy Spirit were saved already. They weren't becoming saved at this point. Uh, they were saved because they believed. They believed in the way that Christians believe. And you can't believe in that way unless you have the power of the Holy Spirit already. So this is something else. Alright? We don't have to be afraid of that distinction. So you had people that had salvation already. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit receiving something new. Something from the Holy Spirit that was an additional power. Okay? I know that you're thinking I'm going to go towards charismaticism. <laughs> uh, some of you are just like, I don't know, just waiting for 1050. Uh, but <laughs> those of you that are following me are probably thinking to yourself, self, do we have a, a closet uh, charismatic here that's trying to uh, get us to believe something? Well, I assure you, just, just hold on. Um, so what we have here is this began the full ministry of the Holy Spirit's power in God's people. This began the full ministry of the Holy Spirit's power in God's people. This promise was that the Holy Spirit would come in a way 
that had been um, that has not happened up until this point. Up until this point, the Holy Spirit was there and was um, the power that allowed people to believe. But now there was something additional that the Holy Spirit was doing, a power of the Holy Spirit that hadn't been seen until this point. It had been seen in particular people at particular times, but now it was a promise that it would come upon all those who believed. And that's okay. We haven't gotten to the distinction of the charismatic movement yet. (laughs) All right, so this event in Acts is the progressive program of redemption. The progressive program. Does everyone know what that means? The program. Have you heard the phrase, get with the program? No? Wow. Okay. (laughs) Have we gotten to that point in the morning that you're like, I'm not even going to respond with something that that is really... You've heard this phrase? Yes. Get with the program? Okay, so what do we mean when we're, we're saying get with the program to someone? It's the plan. Okay, the plan. There's a plan. And so oftentimes, in the theological world, we call that a program. Well, maybe I should have just said plan. Uh, probably have been better. But there is this, the, it's not just a, sometimes, I guess the reason why I didn't use it was, sometimes plan is a little uh, informal. Um, What we're talking about is a very formal plan that God has conducted and even uh, had already designed long before God said, let there be light. Does that make sense? So this program isn't, well, it looks like the Jews aren't going to accept the sacrifice. So what else have we got? Okay, uh, Gentiles, let's try them. See what they do. Looks like people just aren't getting it together. Okay, I'll send another power. You know, the Holy Spirit's going to have to do something else. All right, let's try that. Hope these people get with the program. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? Uh, So the Gentiles are not plan B. The New Testament is not plan B, and uh, the Holy Spirit's power that's been sent is not something that was needed because plan A just isn't working out. Does that make sense? That's something we really need to wrap our head around if we're going to understand the covenantal work of God. And his covenantal work is progressive, and it is a solidified, formal plan of redemption. And within this plan, there are events that have to happen within time, but are not meant to be repeated over and over. Okay? So when Christ came to die on the cross and rise again, this is part of the progressive plan. And by progressive, we can move all our politics out of here. Progressive just means it happens in stages, all right? In the covenant of grace, we have different administrations. That means there's a progress going on throughout, these, uh, throughout the plan of God's gracious covenant with us. 
And this is part of it. So the new covenant comes in the form of Christ. He dies on the cross. He rises again. Now, how often do we need to keep repeating that? Do we need to keep repeating Christ's death and resurrection? Yeah. Okay, well, let me rephrase this. <laughs> let me rephrase this. Um, does Christ need to be re-crucified? No. All right, good, yes. <laughs> See, most of you are good, are good, uh, understand Luther very well, and I appreciate that, and I, I, uh, bad, my question was bad. Do we need to be reminded of him? Yes, absolutely. Do we need to die with him? Yes. But Christ himself doesn't re-crucify and die and raise himself again. That was an event that happened once and for all, right? Um, do we know of a group of people that might deny this, but actually are doing it every time they have communion? They want to re-crucify and re-resurrect. Catholicism does this, yes. When the priest holds the bread up in the air, he is re-offering Christ as a sacrifice. If you were to ask them, are you doing that? Oh, no, no, no. But Luther was pretty convinced that was going on, and I think he was right. Um, we do not have to re-crucify Christ. That was done once and for all. Um, so what about this whole um, pouring out of the Holy Spirit? Um, when this happened, uh, this pouring out of the Holy Spirit, Upon God's people. It was a new work. And this pouring out happened. So when does it happen for us now? When we're saved. When we're saved, that's right. Because you had people that were at a moment of time where the Holy Spirit's work in the, in the Old Testament was happening as it always does for someone to be saved. But now something else was happening. So you had people that were saved that then received the power of the Holy Spirit in a new way. And it happened in time at an event. And so there was an unusual situation there, right? But now, after that, does that new situation have to recreate itself every time um, when someone is saved and they get this new, this new work of the Holy Spirit come second? We need that event to re-happen every time. No. That's why when we are saved, not only does the Holy Spirit come upon us so that we might believe, but He comes upon us in this kind of power. The New Testament power that was promised by, the, by Christ. It does not happen that the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you can be saved. And if you're really good, and if you really ask, then there'll be a second event. Does that make sense? If you, uh, those that desire a second event are looking back at this event and saying, I want this to happen again. Does that make sense? And they're misunderstanding how the program has worked and how the Lord desired the program to work, how the plan comes together. So, you also say that 
because of that program that Christ Church, which was very fledgling at the particular time mm -hmm. in which this was happening, that the helper, the Holy Spirit, was enabling the spreading of that word. Oh, yes. The preaching and the, the building up of, uh, of a church that uh, was, in comparison today, in today, fairly small. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And so... So the power of the Holy Spirit is being poured out in that, in that sense. Right. Um, I mean, why, why tongues? Right. Exactly. Right. Multi multilingual language yeah. across an area that was, what, very much... You know, next door neighbor spoke a different dialect. Yeah. So yeah, you had a time where you had a lot of different ethnicities together with different languages, and the Holy Spirit's power comes on them not to give them extra super duper strength like Samson, not to give them um, power that you would expect that maybe you saw in the Old Testament, but you saw power that's even greater. Power that is designed to spread the gospel. You do not spread the gospel with a language that no one understands. Right? So does it say that uh, the Spirit came down, they spoke in tongues that were from a language that no one understood? No, it says they had languages that people did understand because they were languages of the time. It was not an angelic language. It was not a language that no one understood because it came from some, some other world and someone had another supernatural experience to translate it. It was tongues of the time. Tongues of the time. That was what speaking in tongues was. So if you were to try and recreate that, would you be, what, what would that look like? If you, here, here we are in 2020... Someone says, I want that power of the Holy Spirit. I want tongues. What would, they, what would you expect to happen? <coughs> would it be gibberish that no one knew? <coughs> That's not what you would expect. What would you expect? Italian. Italian. <laughs> German. Uh, with all the rules updated. Right? You wouldn't want, like, ancient... Uh, German, uh, you would even with English, you wouldn't you wouldn't want uh, old old English, which is basically German gibberish. If I remember correctly, I had to learn it in college. It was talk about a dead language. Uh, so anyway, well today we have the word in all of the languages. Yes. So how often is that what people are advocating for when they talk about speaking in tongues? No. Suddenly. Frank knew German or French. No. So keep that in mind. I think in the circumstances that were surrounding this versus what you have today, you have maybe more, more of an ordinary means of a man coming with the gifts of the Holy Spirit through academia or whatever ordinary means that uh, God would provide him with. Mm -hmm. But he would definitely have a gift in the possibility of being able to speak eloquently yeah. and with power. And Paul says that he was not one of those people that were able to speak well, so that's kind of interesting. 
So we're not, we're, I don't want to get into all that yet because we're, we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit eventually. But I just want you to keep that in mind. Keep that in the back of your head. When tongues are spoken of in Scripture because of the power of the Holy Spirit, it is because uh, someone, the Holy Spirit empowered them to speak an actual language that existed that lots of humans spoke already. Okay, we'll get to that later. Um, this event is not meant to be recreated any more than the event of Christ's death and resurrection. We don't want to recreate the, this event. That's not the point of this event. The point of Christ's death isn't to recreate Christ's death over and over. Um, it is to remember it. That's important. And it was part of the sacrifice. And his resurrection is something that we experience with him. The death and resurrection of Christ, we have that experience with him. <coughs> and we'll get to what that means later. But the point is, it's not something to be recreated. So the desire to have a second blessing of the Holy Spirit is a misunderstanding of what is expected of us from this story in Scripture. Um, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit demonstrated God's people are to be identified not by biology, but by something else. What would it be? What was that? Okay. That's true. Let me put it this way. Uh, you have the nation of Israel, right? In the Old Testament, uh, these are, this was God's people. This was the church on earth. Um, what were the Pharisees' view of the nation of Israel? Uh, in comparison to the Gentiles. Right. This is God's people. God's people are identified by the biology. Right? And the biology uh, tended to involve circumcision, the flesh. So the flesh was super important to the Pharisees. Uh, you have to have a a long history of people in your family that go back into the nation of Israel. This is why Paul goes into great detail. If anyone's going to be a good Pharisee, it's, and it's going to be me. Because I have this lineage that goes back. I've been educated. I've been circumcised on the eighth day. Right? But God's people is not identified by biology, but by the Spirit. Capital S. Engrafting the Gentiles was not a plan B, but is the plan to demonstrate that God's people does not rely on any created thing, but relies on the power of God through the Spirit. Let me show you in Romans 2, 28. This is how Paul puts it. Um... Let me start on 27. And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you 
who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is outwardly, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the who? Spirit. Spirit. Not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So this, I bring this up because part of what makes us, um, what makes us pre- Reformed and Presbyterian is this idea that God's people have always been identified as people that are circumcised in the heart. That when we get in the New Testament, we find who, is, who are the Jews? Who are the Jews who have been promised all the way back to Abraham? And that will fulfill those promises through Christ, who is, their, who, is, who is the seed. Who is a Jew that got all those promises? It's anyone who has what? The Spirit. Right? So this, um, oftentimes there's an obsession kind of with, well, you know, the, what will God do with the national Jews? What will God do with the national Jews? Well, that's an interesting question, but it's not the question that Paul wants, right? The question Paul wants is, who's a Jew? Those who have been saved through the Spirit, right? In Christ's blood. Uh, if you look at Galatians, it goes back, those are the ones who receive the promises. So why does this matter? Okay, very quickly. The event of the Holy Spirit's coming with power is once and for all. Therefore, when, when you are saved, that power comes upon you at that moment, and that power is in us forever. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us with His power is something that is not provisional for a time or while we're here on earth or for a little bit. Um, Well, you know, on earth we're weak, we have our bodies, there's sinfulness, we need the Holy Spirit now. But when I get my new body and I'm in heaven, what happens then? I'll tell you, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit forever. Forever. The Holy Spirit indwells you forever. The power of the Holy Spirit is not a impersonal power. It is not like a, an electric socket that when you stick your finger in the electric socket, socket, you get shocked by this electricity that's out there in the world. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit is powerful in us in a personal way. It's personal toward us. This, is, this power is part... Okay, how do I put this? The Holy Spirit is not using power. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit is bestowing and working in us as a personal person in you. 
And that power is not something that, if I can put it this way, some kind of electricity he has. He is working in you personally. The Holy Spirit is given not as a way that God has to fix something. He is given to us in love by the Father. The Father gives the Spirit to us in love. And, the, and Christ also is part of that sending work. And that is also in love. So that which loves you indwells you and it's sent to you in love. And to have the Spirit is to have Christ. <coughs> have the Spirit is to have Christ. What does this mean? Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it talks about Christ becoming, uh, if I can put this in a careful way, there's a unity between the Spirit and Christ that is so close that there is a unity that, as the Spirit works in you, that is also Christ's work as well. That's a hard thing to understand, but Scripture speaks of this work uh, being with Christ and the, the Spirit together. There is a unity there. And so as we think about the Holy Spirit's work in us, what we find is there's this incredible outpouring of power that comes to us through a loving gift to you by the Father and the Son. And this power that dwells in you, who is the Holy Spirit, will be with you forever as he loves you forever. It is a personal activity. Holy Spirit is not an impersonal power, but a person who loves you and will dwell in you for eternity. So that is a, a small introduction as to what we're going to talk about in the next few weeks as we talk about the Holy Spirit's work after the New Testament's event that we just talked about today. I uh, hope that is exciting for you. Um, let's pray. we got to get going. And let me know if you have any questions. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your goodness to us, the way you have revealed yourself in your word. We pray for wisdom as we think about it. We pray for your blessing over this service. Pray for your work as you work through Andrew, that um, we will bow our hearts towards the word you have him to speak to us. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.